Well, it's so good to be back with you guys. Uh, I was just looking at, at my calendar and I realized I haven't been here for like a month. Um, it's, we've, had, we've had snow days unexpectedly. Hopefully none of you came. You all saw the notification of snow days that we had and that sort of thing. But, um, and then I was gone for a couple weeks uh, in a trip in Israel. Pastor Donnie spoke last week. <laughs> got some of our Israel group right here, so the faithful few here. Um, so uh, really, really glad to be back with you guys. I, I, I do have to say, if I seem a little low energy, I just, uh, I just spiked a fever a little bit ago, and I've just been like dragging the last little bit. So the worship team um, just prayed for me a little earlier, and I was just so glad. I'm like, thank you so much, because I'm, I'm, I'm sort of dragging a bit. So don't come shake my hand afterwards. Because you do not want it. Um, so anyway, but um, a couple notes. One is next week is our last week for the semester. Uh, we'll take a break for the summer, and then we'll start again September 11th. It's, it, it, it's in your bulletin. But next week, I uh, really encourage you to be here. Dr. Craig Blomberg from Denver Seminary. He's a New Testament scholar, brilliant guy, kind of one of my heroes of sort of the nerdy Christian group um, who I aspire to be like and just um, owe a lot to. So he's a wonderful, wonderful guy. He's, he's going to be visiting us this next um, Wednesday and, and, and teaching on our last one here. So teaching on, on the one of believing the resurrection of the body and life everlasting. So we'll, we'll go out in that way. And um, so hopefully you'll be there. And if you have friends who, who are, inter- you know, like I said, he's, he's very scholarly, brilliant guy. If you, if you have some friends who might kind of connect in that way, um, would encourage you, you to be there for that. Um, as I mentioned earlier, this, uh, the, the, the past couple weeks, uh, we had 33 of us in Israel for about two weeks, and um, we were scheduled to leave, just to give you a little bit of an update, because I'd been talking about it for a while, but you know, we had been scheduled to leave on the Wednesday when the snowstorm happened, which was just like devastating to us. We're like, no, 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 no. If you remember, it was a year ago that we were gonna go, spring break, and uh, the Nor'eastern happened, and our flight got canceled. And so, um, you know, we thought, well, surely that'll, that's a fluke. It'll never happen again. Um, and so anyway, it, it, it seemed like it was going to derail our trip, but uh, just so thankful to the people who were involved, thankful to God's hand on it, because we were able to get it rescheduled, tack on some extra days at the end. It just had a wonderful, wonderful uh, trip. It just, it's been uh, really just one of the highlights of my year. It, it, it's just wonderful. So if, if any of you are interested in finding out more about it, we shared, uh, some of our team shared this morning in our chapel at, at staff, and we had a couple people come afterwards, and they're like, I might be interested in going next year. So if you're interested, see kind of this group over here, uh, the Rowdy group, and uh, if you have any questions, you go, oh, and some of you, Eric and Hayes, I see you guys over there too. So you're in the wrong place. You're supposed to be sitting over there. Um, so if you're interested in joining us next year, uh, would love to have you. We're going to be adding on um, a couple days in Jordan next year in addition to the uh, time in Israel. So um, we're, we're coming up to, toward the end of this series, the Apostles' Creed, and this week, because of the snow days and all that goofy stuff, we're having to like combine multiple weeks together. So you'll see in your outline there, we have, um, this is our topic for tonight, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, we'll talk about that in a second, the communion of saints and the forgiveness of sins, which would have been 
probably several topics, but we have to cover them all tonight. So um, can we do this? I don't know. I, we haven't done it every single week. Can we stand together, and can we recite this ancient creed of faith? Again, in recognition, there's nothing magical about it. It doesn't make you a Christian saying it. But this is the affirmation of followers of Jesus for nearly two millennia. So if, if you have your bulletin, it's on the inside of it, and we will we'll recite it together, okay? I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. On the third day, he rose again from the grave. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there, he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. <clears throat> well, first, let me address the piece. One of the things that if, if you grew up in church, I remember talking to um, someone who said they grew up in church, and when they were a little kid, uh, they would say this creed oftentimes, and when it got to the part of, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, their father would lean down and be like, don't say this part, don't say this part, don't say this part. <laughs> Because um, they went to a Protestant church, and, and, and they were quite certain that what they were saying was, we believe in Roman Catholicism. And so the parent was you know, trying to say, no, 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 don't say, no, don't say that part. So if, if, if you grew up in church and, and you read that, you either might have been like, well, I'm not too sure about that. Or if you grew up in a Catholic church, you kind of might be like, I knew we were right. I knew we were right. Yeah. Um, but what, what's going on when we use this word Catholic? And, and if you notice, most of the weeks we've been saying, I believe in the Holy Christian church, but tonight we did change it to Catholic because I want us to see what is going on there. There is something that's very significant and unique, but it's easily misunderstood, and so that's why we haven't been saying it because it takes some decoding. Are you with me? So Catholic, the word itself, typically people will say, well, it, it means universal, and yes, there's some truth to that. Catholic small c can mean universal. Catholic big c typically refers to the Roman Catholic Church. But it doesn't just, it, it's a little, little different than just universal, because that might mean like, well, it's everywhere. But the word Catholic itself actually comes from a phrase meaning according to the whole. And it's not so much saying it's everywhere as it is saying that every group is represented by it. And again, you get the slight difference there. It's, it's, it's small, it's slight, but it's not so much saying that it's everywhere as it is saying that people from everywhere are a part of it. It's, you know, in our, in our culture, we talk about having diversity. This is the concept of true diversity. It's the concept that the church is Catholic in the sense of it's made up from every ethnic group, there's no ethnicity that owns Jesus, which is, which is a really helpful, I think, important thing to, to understand and remember here. It's this recognition that you are a part of a family that is far bigger than you can imagine 
in your mind. You're, you're part of brothers and sisters with no shared language except the language of the gospel. <laughs> you're brothers and sisters in the true sense of the word with people who don't share the same socioeconomic status, who don't share the same race with you. And, and, and yet what, what God is doing is, is this global phenomenon and I think one of the really helpful things to do is to travel. When I talk to people who, who go like with Carrie Stewart and our missions trips, and they go to Guatemala, or they go to the, that's one group I was talking to recently, and they said, we, because they, they partner with these local churches, and they're like, man, we go to their church services, and like, I don't understand a word they're saying. Occasionally, I think I hear the word, something that sounds like Jesus, but like hallelujah is always the same in every language. Like I can pick out hallelujah. I kind of pick, I think they're talking about Jesus. But they say, even though I understand nothing, there's something powerful to my soul realizing so much bigger than what's going on at Fort Collins, Colorado when I come to Wednesday night community or when I come to the church service on. It's this bigger thing that God is doing. Listen to the words of Revelation chapter 7. The Apostle John is, is looking, seeing this vision from Jesus about this broader Catholic, in the sense, church. In Revelation 7, verses 9 through 10, he writes this, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne, and before the Lamb, they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our, corporate, belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And let me just say this, one reason why I think this is so important for us to have like theologically down, it's not just sort of an interesting tidbit, if, if this is a part of your like worldview, number one, this will break any arrogance you have about you think you know how church should be done, <laughs> right? Like there is a style that I think how church should be, like a style at least that I like, right? You probably are the same way, right? You probably go or grew up in a church or, or pick places to go, but you're like, I mean, I, I like how it feels, I like the style there, but the minute, there's one guy, um, Andy Stanley, I love this idea, uh, he's, a, he's a church leader, and he, he, he talks about we have a mission as the church, and then we have a method, right? You get the difference? Like our mission is this gospel thing, go into all the world, preach the gospel, right? That's our, that's our mission. Our method is how we do it. Like the way Timberline, we're a Protestant, evangelical, charismatic, but you know what I mean? Like we're a certain kind of church, right? And then there's this church over here. Their method's different. And Andy Stanley has this great line. He says, um, marry the message, date the method. <laughs> you get it? Marry the message. You're, you're married to it. Only date the method. You might need to break up with your method at some point. <laughs> you might need to find a different method. Are you with me on that? And, and this reality, this truth reminds us of that. Marry the message of Jesus. Marry it. But just date whatever church method you're into right now. I mean, I re you know, again, it'll change. You'll, you'll think, oh, I think, I think this is a better way to do church. You know? But again, it, it keeps us humble in recognizing that the style that I like, it's just the method. It's, it's just the style. So let's get into it here. 
We've been saying that, that this, this, um, this creed, it's, it's in a Trinitarian form. Do you remember that? It first talks about the Father, then it talks about the Son, and then as Pastor Donnie interest, yeah, introduces to last week, talks about, about Jesus, or about the Holy Spirit. And so the theme of the church, which is what we're getting to tonight, right? I believe in the, whole, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, forgiveness of sins. That falls underneath the Holy Spirit. It's not like he's just going off and, let me just talk about some random things here. This falls underneath the Holy Spirit because what's going on in the church today is just the result of what Jesus has been continuing to do. Let me give you an example. The book of Acts, um, if you remember, the book of Acts is like the, uh, Luke's part two. Right? Part one is the gospel of Luke. Part two is the book of Acts. Look how Luke starts out. And the book of Acts is all about what? It's about the church, right? It's about this, this movement that Jesus has begun. Look, Acts 1.1, Luke starts it by saying this. He says, in my former book, which is the gospel of Luke, in my former book, Theophilus, that's the guy he's writing it to, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day that he was taken up into heaven. And then what he goes on to say is the book of Acts is about everything Jesus is continuing to do through the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is continuing to, like he said in Matthew chapter 16, when Matthew is at Caesarea Philippi, you guys will remember this, when he says, I will build my church and the gates of hell won't prevail. This, so this is Jesus continuing to build his church. And so um, let, me, let me show you this here just so you can think about kind of the, uh, the structure of it. Pastor Donnie started talking last week about, I believe, in the Holy Spirit, right? And then we're going to be talking about tonight, and in the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints and the forgiveness of sins. Now, first, a question we have to ask. When we say we believe in the church, what do we mean? Like, in what sense are we saying that? And this is important. Is it in the same sense that we're saying, I believe in God the Father, I believe in Jesus, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I would suggest no, we're, we're not meaning it in that same sense when we say we believe in the church. We're not meaning it in the sense of I believe or trust in the church for my salvation. You with me on that? Because here's the thing, the minute you trust or believe ultimately in something that's not divine, what's the word for that? It's idolatry. Right? If you believe in something that's not divine for your ultimate purpose, your ultimate hope, that's called idolatry, worshiping something that's not divine. And the minute you say, I believe in the church in the sense of the church is my hope, um, you're just setting yourself up for failure in that way. I, I was talking to someone um, a few weeks ago, and they were talking about, the, it, was, it was a woman, she was talking about her son who lives in a different state, it was just saying, hey, would you pray for him? Because he's just, he's really struggling to find his place in a church. And so the conversation was like, well, is it like, is he having a, does he know of many churches? Is he having a hard time? And she said, well, no, he's just been let down by the church. And I'm like, yeah, me too. <laughs> right? Like, of course. But see, you will think that way if, well, I believe in the church in the same way you're saying I believe in God. The Father, I believe in the Son, I believe in the church. That's not what we mean. 
The church is not infallible. So we don't mean it in, in that sense. And we also don't mean it in the sense of we believe the church. Like whatever the church tells me, that's what I believe. There was, in the Middle Ages, there was this idea called implicit faith. It was the idea that you could just go, well, I don't really know everything the church believes, but I just, whatever they teach must be true, so I believe in what they believe. And therefore, I'm good. Implicit faith. <laughs> And, and that was one of the things that the reformers go, no, 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 no. <laughs> Faith is not turning over um, the rights to inquire into an organization and just be like, yeah, I'm with them. Whatever they believe, I'm sure it's true. <laughs> There's this deeply personal nature to faith. So when we say, I believe in the church, we're saying, I believe it in the sense of, I believe that Jesus is creating it and shaping it by the Holy Spirit, and I'm part of it. Are you with me on that? But that's not the power source. That's the building, not literally. That's the, that's the community that is being built. Um, and one other thing here that I want to say about the language, as we think about this right here, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church or the Holy Catholic Church, and the communion of the Holy. There's one word, both in Greek and Latin, that means holy, like Holy Spirit, uh, holy Christian church and the communion of the saints. Saints is the exact same word as holy there. It's hagios. Hagios in Greek, it just means holy. Sometimes it can mean holy spirit. Sometimes it can mean someone who is holy, like a, that we translate it saint. Sometimes it's the same. It's the exact same word. But holiness from these two is derived from this one. Like, do you get the difference? These two are not holy in the same way this is, he is holy. These two, these bottom two, are derived from the holiness. So let me give you a definite, let me give you the two common definitions in the Bible for holiness, and they're connected, but they're, they're, they're different. The first one is the idea that a thing can be sacred because of its close connection to God. Does that make sense? So the thing has a sacred. Think of... Um, in the Old Testament, uh, the temple, remember there are candelabras and there are bowls and there are all these instruments, right? And, and, and it's not like, oh, they're like gold. It's not, it's not what they're made of. It's what they're connected. They're, they're really closely connected to God's presence, the temple. And so they're sacred in that sense, okay? So that's one sense of holy. And then the other sense of holy is something being pure or morally perfect, so here's the question. When we say, when we refer to the holy Catholic Church, which one do we have in mind? I'm assuming most of you have been around church long enough to know it is not morally perfect, right? It is, it is not, it's not pure. We've all seen churches where there's just a lot of dysfunction. That's every single church in the world that there is. So what do we mean by it? Well, let me give you an example. Think of... Again, where some of us were the last couple of weeks, we, we talk about the holy land, right? When we talk about it as the holy land, what do we mean? Do, me, do we mean by the holy land that it's, uh, it's a morally perfect place where everyone loves each other and there's peace? <laughs> no. No, it's, in fact, there isn't much of that at all at, at moments, so why do we call it holy? Listen to... Um, Historian Justo Gonzalez, he writes this. 
in designating, he's talking about the land, in, in designating it holy, uh, we, rem- we remind ourselves that it is not only a land of war, terrorism, and hatred, but also a land where it has pleased God to come most closely in history. It is the land where Abraham and Sarah were called, where Jacob and his wives raised their children, from where Joseph went to Egypt and where his descendants eventually returned, where Samuel heard God's voice and Isaiah saw the Lord. It is the land where Peter and Mary and James and Mary Magdalene, the land where Jesus walked, the land where he shed his tears and his blood. All of this does not make it particularly pure. On the contrary, it makes its constant history of war and hatred even more tragic, but it does make it holy. So likewise, when we claim that the church, the the Catholic small c church, is holy, we're, we're, we're not claiming a level of moral perfection to it. And we have to be really careful in that way because we don't want to set others up for failure, ourselves up for disappointment. Instead, we're saying this is the community that Jesus founded and his spirit resides in it. And so because of its closeness to the spirit, it is in that sense holy. Um, there's one, one example, an experience that, that, that we had is just on my mind because of our time in Israel that I think might be helpful as, as we think about this. One of our experiences as we were there was we, we went to the location that commemorates the upper room the, where the disciples and Jesus um, had the Last Supper and later, maybe more importantly, commemorates the location where when Jesus promises the giving of the Holy Spirit, his presence, and he says, go and wait, remember? And then they go to this upper room, and they're there, and they're praying, and they're waiting for the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then on this particular uh, festival, one of these three pilgrimage festivals, Pentecost, uh, we're, we're told that they're in this upper room, waiting for this promise of the Holy Spirit. And then uh, Luke, the way he describes it was, he describes this violent wind and fire. Do you remember this from the book of Acts if you've ever read this before? And the reason he describes it that way is because he has in mind something very specific. And this is one of the questions that, that, that we talked about when we were there is we said, when you think of that description of the presence of God, when was the first time, because Luke's tapping into an Old Testament theme. When was the first time that God's presence is represented by fire? Can you remember? Someone said it. The burning bush. Do you remember this? Moses goes to Mount Sinai, right? And God's presence is is in this fire, right? And God tells Moses, bring the Israelites back here and um, you'll know that this is accurate because you're going to worship me here. And so he delivers them out of slavery. He brings them back to Mount Sinai. And God's presence falls on the mountain. And what's the, what's the image? What's the picture? What's the phenomenon? It's a storm, right? It's violent storm and fire, okay? And then remember when he gives instructions, I want you to build a tabernacle for me. They're very specific instructions. And they build the tabernacle, and after, after it's complete, where does this violent storm and fire move to? From on top of the mountain. 
It moves down the mountain, and it goes into the tabernacle, and this fire is hovering over the tabernacle, okay? So this is this Old Testament theme that this is God's presence. This is a picture of it. So now with that in mind, think about what what Luke is saying when he says, Jesus said, I'm going to send my presence, the Spirit, go wait, and they're in this upper room, and then he describes there's a violent wind, a storm, and then this fire, and then the fire like breaks apart, right? And what does it do? It rests above, not just one, but multi- every single person in the location. Do you see what Luke is asserting, <laughs> what Luke is getting at? Luke is claiming that this is God's temple presence, now not in a room, but in a person, and not one person, in every person in this Catholic view of this people. And we talked about this idea that basically Luke's claiming that people are becoming who follow Jesus, these little mobile temples, <laughs> that they now have the very presence of God with them where the spirit dwells. And God's temple is serious business. If you've ever read Luke, uh, Acts chapter five, weird story, Lots of people have like such a hard time with it. Ananias and Sapphira, you know what I'm talking about? These two disciples. If it feels really weird to you, you have to see what Luke has in mind. In the book of Leviticus, there's a story where in the temple, these two priests go into the temple and they disrespect God. They go in in an unworthy manner and they're struck dead and they die. Okay? Luke, Acts chapter 5 Luke has just told the story. Now, now God's presence is in these little mobile temples, this new thing called the church. And these two disciples come, and they try to lie to the Holy Spirit. Ananias and Sapphira, right, about the money thing. Do you remember this? And what happens to them? Similar fate, right? Do you see what he's saying? This is just as serious. This is God's temple space now, that's, that's what he's trying to get across. This is now the way and the, and the way in which God's presence is dwelling in the world. It's not in a building anymore. It's actually in his people. That's what's going on. And you think about it, I would encourage you, do a search through the New Testament of the word temple. Read how many times in the New Testament when it talks about temple, what it says, I'll give you just two examples. 1 Corinthians 3.16, Paul writes, don't you know that you yourselves, now he's writing to Corinth. Have you ever heard anything about the Corinthian people? Yeah, they're just idiots. I mean, they're just so, seriously, they're a mess, right? They're a mess. Do you, know, do you not know that you yourselves are God's temple? And that God's spirit dwells in your midst? Or 1 Corinthians 6, 19, same group of people. Uh, do you not know that your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own, he says. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. See, it's for that reason that we say, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of Saints. Now, you might have grown up in a tradition where the word saint was, it was uh, kept from, from you, um, and it was only applied to who? Like St. Augustine, right? Uh, you know, all, people who, like, the church confers sainthood on, 
right? These people who would say, well, they're really, really good. Now again, which definition of holiness do they have? Pure, morally perfect, or based, sacredness based on their connection to God? They're using the morally perfect one because see, they're so good, we will give them the title saint. And you see how that's missing the mark. Do you see how that creates two different categories of people? Those who are saintly, right? Those who are sort of high up, the ones who are, you know, really serving God. And then there's the commoners. <laughs> Jesus had no concept of that. That is completely, for, not only foreign to, it's antithetical to this kingdom that Jesus was setting up in here. Listen to how often, I'll just read a few for you here. Um, Almost every single book of Paul, like read the very first verse in it, and this is, what you'll, this is the kind of thing you'll hear. Romans 1, 7. Uh, to all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from our God and Father, Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 1, 2. To the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place, blah, blah, blah. 2 Corinthians, second letter, 1, 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints. Colossians 1, 2, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae. Ephesians 1, 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus. Philippians 1, 1, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus. Jesus, who were in Philippi. 1 Corinthians 14, for God is not a God of, um, of confusion, but a God of peace, as in all the churches of all the hagias, holy ones, saints. <laughs> Jesus' view is that if you have the presence of God, and I don't mean like if you're living right, because that's the morally perfect view. <laughs> if you have a relationship with God, you're a hagias, you're a holy one because you're set apart. You're set apart by him. It's not what you're made of that makes you a saint. You get that? Or that makes you holy. It's because he said, I've set you apart for me. You're mine. It's not, it's not who you are in terms of your quality. It's whose you are in terms of who you belong to. So we think about these you know, ideas, and again, you think about Corinth as a great example, the place of Paul throughout his letters. He writes, man, you guys have pride you need to deal with. You guys are backbiting. Man, you guys have arrogance. You guys have disunity that's like cancerous to what I've called you to be. He said, man, you guys are quarreling. There's so much dissension. There's like some sexual immorality in your community, like there's stuff you, know, you guys need to deal with, but he never said, so I'm not gonna call, you know, I'll call you sinners, I'll call Ephesus saints, but, <laughs> right? He's saying you're, you're set apart for God, and so he, he's calling them saints not because of the quality of their lives, but because God has set them apart for a significant way in their life. And this, this is the reality that Paul leans on when he says, I want you to follow Jesus. I want you to like put aside some of that stuff. I want you to leave behind things. Why? Because the Spirit is like inside you, is empowering you. The same Spirit, he says in Romans 8, that was instrumental, that was absolutely necessary and significant in raising Jesus from the dead, I mean, that's an impossible thing. 
says, yeah, that's just in you. Like right now and tomorrow morning and while you're sleeping. That same power, that's what's infused inside you. Romans chapter six says this, verse five, for we have been united with Jesus in a death like his. And so we, have, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body which is mastered by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. And he says in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in King Jesus. Therefore, don't let sin rule and reign inside your, your, your body so that you obey its evil desires. Don't offer any part of yourself as an instrument. That's like, a, that's like all the things in the Old Testament temple. Those are all the things that are used. Don't offer your body as an instrument for wickedness, but rather offer yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. Uh, let, me, let me read for you one of my favorite, uh, if, if you've listened to me for very long, you know my favorite book in the world outside of the books of the Bible is Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. And he's got one particular address toward the end of the book called Is Christianity Easy or Hard? Which is a great title of a, of a chapter. And he, he says this, and he's trying to orient you and me to see it this way. There's a couple ways to see about what Jesus wants to do in my life. Either Jesus wants to kind of like fix a couple things in my life, or he wants to do something much deeper. And a lot of us grew up in a setting where we thought, well, Jesus just wants to fix some of the stuff that's broken, right? And so it almost feels like torment, because <laughs> he's just going after, he's like nitpicking I want this changed, I want that changed, I want this changed. Lewis says this, the Christian way is different. It's harder and easier. Jesus says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. I have not come to torment your natural self, but to kill it. No half measures are any good. I don't want to cut off a branch here and a branch there. I want the whole tree down. I don't want to drill the tooth or crown it or stop it, but to have it out. Hand over the whole natural self. All the desires which you think innocent, as well as the ones which you think wicked, the whole outfit. And here's the key. I will give you a new self instead. In fact, I will give you myself. My own will, he says, shall become yours. That may be a totally different view from what you grew up with in church. Because you might have, Dallas Willard calls it the gospel of sin management. God came to sort of fix a couple things. He wants to, you know, put a crown on the tooth. He wants to cut off this limb, to use these examples, right? He wants to mess with stuff, which, like he says, that's torment, because he's nitpicking you. And Jesus says, oh, no, 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 no. It's actually much worse. I want the whole tree down. I want the whole tooth out. But it's much easier, because you don't have to go on living that way as someone who's hobbling along with branches missing and teeth gone. He says, I'm going to give you a new self. 
I'm going to give you myself. That's this whole significance of the Spirit. That's the, that I'm this little mini mobile temple. <laughs> His Spirit actually really has the power to change what I want, to actually change the inward reality of me. Let me mention one other piece I think that's important about when we think about the communion of saints, and that's this idea of communion refers to your community. And your community means who you are deeply committed to. See, people in a local community of faith, um, they're going to bother you if you haven't noticed that already. Um, And in their sinfulness bothering you and in your sinfulness bothering them, God's going to sanctify you, make you holier. (laughs) He's going to change you. He's going to do things in your life. I, um, let me tell, this isn't a specific story. I've got dozens. I have no one in particular in mind, so hopefully no one thinks I'm talking about them because I have hundreds of conversations. <laughs> this is a, I've had dozens and dozens of conversations like this. Either the person comes to me and they say, hey, I've, they either had like a concern or a problem with something like maybe that I said or did, or I come to them because I'm kind of, Maybe correcting them, asking a question like, eh, I, you know, I heard this went on. I'm kind of concerned about this relationship that's going on. And when it's brought up, not in a condemning way, okay, are you with me? It's like a, hey, I'm concerned. This is, this is one of the things that is the most troubling thing for me as a pastor. Is when, and, and I hear this more often than I would like. One of the first things I say is, well, maybe, maybe I just need to leave Timberline. I'm not kidding. It is so often that either when I confront someone or they confront me about an issue, their first initial response is, maybe I just need to find another church home. And you guys, that, that is the most commitment-less response you could possibly... And, and, and I've asked people, like, first thing I always ask anytime someone says that is I say, how long have you been a, 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 like a person of Timberline? And almost always it's like five years, seven years, 15 years. And I'm like, you're going to let this one thing throw 15 years of community? Was this really your community ever? Right? Because like, if, if, if it's that easy for you to walk away, like, what's, what's going on like, in your family? Do you just walk away from your family the minute someone confronts you about something? Because this is the reality. The communion of saints means you are deeply committed to a community of people, and at times they're going to bother you, they're going to rub you wrong, they're going to confront you, you're going to confront them, you're not going to see eye to eye, and you're going to have problems. Um, one, One researcher defined family, which, of course, that's what Christians view the communion of saints. He said this, I love this definition. He said, the definition of family is a group of people who are irrationally committed to each other's well-being. And he was just defining a biological family. A biological family is a group of people who are irrationally committed to each other's well-being. Is that how you view your community, like your church community? Like, are you irrationally committed to the well-being of the person next to you, the person who is a part of your small group, or part of your women's group, or your men's group, or the prayer group that you show up to, or Wednesday night community, or fill in the blank, or whatever? Because, see, the reality is 
to, be, to believe in the communion of saints, it's not just like an abstract, oh yeah, I, I think that's a true thing. It's a commitment thing. It's saying, I give myself to that. In the New Testament, there are actually, you might have heard this before, 59 one another's. Have you heard this before? <laughs> 59 times, just under 60, in the New Testament where the authors make an admonition about what it means to be the community, and it, and it has to do with one another. Let me, let me just read some of them for you here. Uh, be at peace with one another. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Live in harmony with one another. Stop passing judgment on one another. Accept one another. Instruct one another. Greet one another with a holy kiss. When you come together to eat, wait for one another. Have equal concern for one another. Greet one another. Serve one another in love. Uh, let us not become conceited, provoking, or envying one another. Carry one another's burdens. Be patient, bearing one with one another in love. Be kind and compassionate to one another. Forgive one another. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Do not lie to one another. Bear with one another. Forgive whatever grievances you may have with one another. Teach one another. Admonish one another. Make your love increase and overflow with one another. Encourage one another. Build one another up. Spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Do not slander one another. Do not grumble against one another. Confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another. Love one another deeply. Live in harmony with one another. Offer hospitality to one another. Clothe yourselves in humility toward one another. And then the most common one is love one another. I didn't even read your thank, you're welcome. All 59 of them, right? It's on and on again. It's talking about this idea, what does it mean to be the community? There is a golden rule of relationship. And this is it. The golden rule of, and this is true in all relationships, but my question is, do you view it this way in your community? The golden rule of relationship is that you rejoice with those who rejoice and you mourn with those who mourn. Just feeling felt. Yeah, there, there are studies done about um, mothers of newborn infants, newborn little babies, and when the baby will start to cry, the mother will instinctually stick out her lower lip, and she will make sad little sounds, right? And in that moment, it communicates to the baby, I know how you feel inside, because I feel that way too. And physiologically, there's something amazing that happens. The baby's brain actually changes a little bit, and the baby's sadness actually goes down a little bit, and the baby actually calms. It's as if the mother has in some way taken the sorrows a little bit of the baby and has given a little bit to the baby of, of her own peace. Because see, feeling felt is to the soul what, what, what food is to the stomach. It is what air is to the lungs. Feeling felt requires two things in every single relationship that you have. It's knowing and accepting. Every single one, we all want that, right? I want to be known by you, like really known as I really am. Not the facade, not the Brent that I want, like really known. And I want to be accepted for who I am. And the golden rule of relationship is to rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn. 
And that's a question I think for us as a community is, is that, is that who we are? Is that who you're being in relationships with other people? Are you deeply committed to the community of the holy, the community of the saints? And that gets to our very last piece in here, which is a, which is a natural transition, the forgiveness of sins, right? Because if you're doing the 59 one another's, and if you're in a community that's committed to that amidst all of the mess up and the failure and the ways you're going to blow it, they're going to blow it. If you're deeply committed to that, number one, you're going to understand, I am forgiven. Right? I'm someone who has been, been forgiven much. Remember the, remember the parable that Jesus um, told in Matthew chapter 6 about the servant who is forgiven like, like 2,000 days worth of work? And then, and, and he works for the king, and then he sees the guy who owes him like a hundred days of work, and he grabs him by the throat and holds him up against the wall, and he says, pay me back, and he goes, ah, I'll try, I'll try. He goes, no, forget it, and throws him in debtor's prison. Do you remember that? And then the, the king hears about it, and Jesus' parable is, he says, don't you realize which guy you are? You're the guy, number one, your identity. You are, you're the guy who has been forgiven the 10,000 days of work. And if you don't realize that's your identity, you're never going to do this community thing well. And then number two, a second, I think, point of this, of this parable is this reality that when the, when the other man saw the first man coming, he knew this guy works for the king. He was a steward of the king. And there's this reality that as you go into your life, there's one thing people know, you work for the king. So the way in which you behave the way in which you act, the way in which you say, I am willing to forgive you, says something about the king. He's like that too. It speaks of him. And so this is what I want us to reflect on as, as, as we go into this week. I, like I said, this has been a huge challenge to me because I've had to ask questions like, man, how deeply committed am I to community? Like how much is this not just something that I say I believe, but I really do it? You know what I mean? Like I really give myself to it. And these one another's I'm stepping into. And I'm recognizing people are going to offend me and bother me. In their sinfulness, God's going to change me. And in my sinfulness, he's going to, he's going to change them. And he's going to make me a little bit more like Jesus. I want us to transition to a time where, I don't know if there's any picture that's better than this right here. Because this is a picture of someone who is so deeply committed to the community of broken people, sinners who became, because of his life, death, and resurrection, the community of saints, because of his goodness, because of his holiness, this kind of holiness, we have a derived holiness. And so we remind ourselves of that when we, when we take the bread, it was a picture of his body, Jesus' body broken for us, allowing us to be the community of saints. It's amazing, allowing us to be forgiven everything, allowing us to be a part of a community of the 59 one another's, allowing us to be a part of, of the community empowered by the very presence of the most holy God and his bloodshed.